how valuable, effective and useful are coronial inquests? That's the question that former Deputy State Coroner Hugh Dillon and special guest host, former Professor of Law, Ray Watterson, will be answering in this episode of Law Matters. I'm Catherine Henry, and today in Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers, we're looking at inquests and learning from some of the most knowledgeable people in law around this matter. I'm really grateful for their input. I hope you enjoy this important episode of Law Matters with guest host Ray Watterson. Well, thanks, Catherine. Inquests are inquiries into sudden and unexpected deaths, and there's an understanding that inquests should try to help families come to terms with their loss, provide a true and reliable count of what happened to bring about the loss of their loved one, provide some reassurance to families and the general community that if someone lost their life because of an accident, then we can make changes to try to reduce those accidents in the future. But I do still wonder, like many others, is the current system working? This isn't the first time this question's been asked, and I can guarantee it won't be the last time either. But there's a reason it's been asked so often, and that's what I'm going to explore today with former Deputy State Coroner Hugh Dillon. Hugh Dillon was a magistrate for more than 20 years and was the Deputy State Coroner from 2008 to 2016. He's now an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales Law School. Hugh, welcome to Law Matters. Uh, Thank you very much, Ray. Lovely to speak to you. I want to get into recent inquiries and the coronial jurisdiction as a whole in a moment. But first, you were the Deputy State Coroner for eight years up till 2016. Um, Can you give us a sense of the important work that the coronial system does and the difference it makes? Yeah, it's an enigmatic jurisdiction for most people, fortunately. You know, fortunately, most people don't get drawn into it. It's all about investigating sudden, unexpected, unnatural or unexplained deaths and also deaths in custody or police operations, those sort of things where the state is implicated in in someone's death. So it's really important for most people, if, if they lose someone in, in these ways, that these, their burning questions be answered and we try and see what happened and, and also whether we can prevent it happening again. In 2021, you were part of the Select Committee inquiry into the New South Wales coronial system and, and that began in 2021 and it concluded last year, I understand, with about 35 recommendations. And those recommendations called for a complete overhaul of the coronial system. Why is the coronial system so broken here? Uh, there are a number of reasons. And the, f- the first and main one, though, is that um, the, the system has been locked into the local court. The local court of New South Wales is Australia's largest criminal court. And it's been left there really since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, so over 120 years, um, there is no lobby group for the bereaved. Um, Everybody suffers these tragedies alone, more or less. Every family does. There's no organised 
forum for them to lobby government for a better system. And so the local court has has run it in the way it wants to uh, for these 120-odd years. And I have to say, although I admire magistrates generally, they're not the right people to be running this kind of system. It's very, very different from what what magistrates generally do. And governments have allowed this to go because there's really been no review of the coronial system until that uh, that parliamentary inquiry uh, since 1975. So it's it's gone on for a very long time without anybody really poking their nose into it and saying, why do we do it this way? Can we do it better? And is it um, basically because this old, you know, mode of magistrates' courts is about, you know, did you break the law criminally or civilly, you know, um, and uh, should you... You, know, you have to pay damages or should you be put in prison? And and that sort of system's conducted in a very adversarial way. Now, it seems to me those two things are just not what a coronial system about. It's not about should someone be put in jail, although it might be well be about a, accountability in the sense of who did what to bring about a death. Yeah. And uh, it should be uh, looking not just to the past but to the future about, you know, recommendations for prevention. Precisely. And a very, you know, the adversarial mindset, which just isn't appropriate for an inquisitorial process, you know, getting to the truth. Yeah, well, the the primary thing to understand and the difference from the criminal justice system, or in fact, the, the common law system generally, uh, the mainstream courts, is that it is inquisitorial. That is, it's investigative. and it, And so we're not trying to find out whether someone is guilty or not, although that question can arise, or whether they're liable in law for something, we're trying to find out really what happened and why. And then, as you said, whether we can make recommendations which will prevent it happening again. So that's a very different approach to uh, a legal problem from the way courts generally deal with things in which parties face off against each other and you have a, a referee in the middle called a judge. Um, the coroner leads the, leads the inquiry. The coroner leads the search party, if you like, for the truth. That's a good way to put it, if you don't mind me saying. Coming back now to that select committee um, in 2021 that you were a part of that, uh, that called for a complete overhaul of the system, as I understand it, only nine of the recommendations have been adopted. Um, what's changed since those findings were handed down? That's the select committee's findings and what still needs to change. So what's been done and what needs to be done out of the um, select committee's recommendations? I actually think it was 16 uh, of the recommendations were, as the government of the day uh, put it, were supported Oh, gotcha, yep. But nine of them were things they were already doing. So really they ignored the the things that would make a real difference. Right. Now, that government was defeated in March this year. Yep. Uh, the new government has a new, we see a new Attorney General and uh, Michael Daly, the Attorney General, has uh, started a review of the Coroner's Act and the system overall is also 
uh, undertaken to review the, f- the findings of the select committee. So all those 35 recommendations are back on the table. They haven't been rejected or supported at this stage, uh, but by the end of this year, it's expected that um, the government will, the new government will, will have a have a new position. So um, I'm hopeful that the attorney will will embrace most of the recommendations of of the inquiry. Just from memory, I'm not sure if the inquiry dealt with this aspect of it, um, but it's an aspect I know you and I've been interested in. And that's what happens to recommendations. Uh, there's been a study done which shows that many recommendations arising from inquests and royal commissions uh, are never acted upon, right? Quite a surprising yeah. amount. Well, you did a great study yourself, Ray. Well, I, w- I wasn't going to mention that here, but it's very nice of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, in fact, that's the only study that's ever been done, to my knowledge, of what happens to coronial and other recommendations. And it was a bit dismal. Um, not only were many left on the shelf, but some were actually lost. Anyway, that's uh, another matter. Um, what I think is important from what you've just said is with the new government and the Attorney General and this review, do you know if they're going to have a look at the question of um, not just streamlining, which is very important, the coronial system, but, you know, doing something about um, prevention, uh, which, you know, comes from the coronial recommendations, and prevention, of course, of similar um, uh, deaths, avoidable deaths, um, can only come if coronial recommendations are actually acted upon and something's done about them. Do you think that sort of aspect might be picked up uh, by the new Attorney General? Yeah, I think so. The um, the parliamentary inquiry made this one of its focuses, so it received a lot of evidence that there was no real mechanism to follow up. Yes. Um, no real accountability in government or, or other recipients of recommendations uh, to ensure that they at least addressed the recommendations. Um I wouldn't say that all recommendations should be adopted. There are sometimes better ways of doing things yes. than, than those that the coroners come up with. But the recommendations have to be taken seriously. And uh, so the parliamentary inquiry suggested that there be parliamentary oversight of the coronial system and focusing in particular on on recommendations, uh, that there should be a requirement that all recommendations be responded to within six months, uh, that all the, the recommendations and the responses to the recommendations be collected together on the Coroner's Court website. That's done in Victoria and has been done for many years now. Um, these sort of things really need to be done so that anybody who's interested, researchers like you and me, uh, can go to one spot and see what has been the response and whether the government has followed up on these particular recommendations. Critically important if the system is to work as it's meant to. We all realise that the uh, constitutional referendum on an Indigenous voice has just been lost, and now there's a lot of soul-searching and a lot of looking around for any positives, any things that could come out of this. And um, I'm wondering if at some stage um, some people might realise that, of course, coroners have had a lot to do with um, Indigenous inquests, um, you know, some deaths in custody, etc. 
And it may well be that um, coming out of the disappointment of the uh, uh, the lost referendum, um, that uh, people will start to, and governments might turn to things like looking at implementing recommendations for Indigenous deaths and other deaths and the sort of things we've just been talking about. So maybe in a remote way, this lost referendum will spur people to look at things like, you know, what happens to recommendations for Indigenous deaths and indeed what happens for coronial recommendations for all sorts of deaths. Anyway, we'll see what happens with that. Do you think the New South Wales coronial jurisdiction is funded appropriately now? And if it's not, what is suffering, do you think, because of any lack of funding? Well, it's certainly not funded uh, sufficiently. It's nowhere near funded sufficiently. And also, I think uh, a lot of the money that is spent on the coronial system at the moment is, in fact, uh, being spent on the wrong things. So one of the, one of the structural problems, and I, as I mentioned at the start, the system was embedded in the local court, the magistracy, back at the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century. So we now have around about 47% of deaths reported in the country, and they're dealt with largely by country magistrates. Um, country magistrates make virtually no contribution to inquests. They don't, they don't conduct inquests, or they very rarely conduct inquests, and they make virtually no recommendations to prevent future deaths. So... The system is very lopsided, and yet a lot of the effort of the coronial system is made by court registrars in the country and local magistrates, and it's done poorly. That's, that's one of the problems. The second problem, um, the resourcing problem, is there simply aren't enough coroners in New South Wales. So, for example, in Victoria, with a similar number of deaths reported per annum, uh, they have 14 coroners. We have seven. Um, I think Queensland has 10. New Zealand, with half the number of deaths reported, has, I think, 18 full-time coroners and another eight part-time coroners. So the coroners we have, the seven we have, um, are working incredibly hard just to... to to meet the incoming tide of work. They can't do it particularly well. They do some very good inquests, but they can't do inquests in all the cases that they should do if we're really going to maximise or optimise our uh, preventive effort. And they can't really put their effort also into um, meeting the needs of, of families. So, unfortunately... It's it's a very um, it's a very thin system. It's it's on a very thin diet of of resources trying to do a very important job. Those figures are quite astounding here. And when you think that really at the end of the day, um, this whole system's about um, finding out why someone's died, um, paying proper respect to human life, if you like, uh, supporting families who've been through, you know, sometimes horrendous situations and trying 
um, to prevent recurrences. I mean, it's a bit hard to see if you could have a more important system than one that's about saving lives, right? Yeah, isn't it? Um, and when you get those sorts of figures about country magistrates and and about uh, the purport, the you know the comparison between um, uh, the New South Wales stock, if you like, of coroners and those in other jurisdictions, it's pretty damn staggering. Yeah, there's another thing too. Um, our legislation is not only obsolete, but it's it's so obsolete, it's actually counterproductive. Um, so, for example, in Victoria and England and New Zealand and, uh, and others, many other jurisdictions, coroners can make findings about what happened and then make recommendations without necessarily holding a public inquest. We can't do that in New South Wales. An inquest is is a good thing to do in many cases, but it is a slow, complex sort of way of getting where you want to go. In many cases, you could sit at your desk, read the documents, and then come up with recommendations. And in, so in Victoria, uh, they, they produce uh, hundreds of these kind of cases a year. In New South Wales, we only do slightly over 100 inquests a year. And under our Act, we can only make recommendations if you hold an inquest. So there are great inefficiencies in our system as well as insufficient resources. Um, it is incredibly frustrating. I've, you and I have talked about this many times, but it's inf- incredibly frustrating when you can see all these things, when you tell government, I've been talking to government um, and other people for the past decade about these problems and it's only now that uh, some people are starting to to get a grip on it. Uh, it's, uh, it is unbelievably frustrating but it's also very cruel I think to put all these families through this distressing system when it doesn't really perform the way it ought to. Well you're right Hugh, and that's a staggering contrast. It's clear from what you've said that many sensible um, investigations of of avoidable deaths could be made and many sensible recommendations, ideas to fix things could come out uh, without a a lengthy inquiry process but be done by just gathering the evidence together in a less um, uh, formal way. Yeah, Um, exactly. That brings us to you know one of the things you actually did touch about um, on about you know those living in regional areas. Um, does distance uh, itself add a difficulty um, to inquests? Well, yes, it does. Of course, one of the things I've been thinking quite a lot about. You touched on it a little bit earlier. Is the experience of Aboriginal people, of First Nations people? Um, there is a fair bit of discussion, of course, about Aboriginal deaths in custody. But one of the things that really exercises me is how few inquests and real investigations there are of non-custodial Aboriginal deaths, for example, due to failings in the health system and so forth. But the same thing could be said of many non-Indigenous deaths in regional areas. You know, one of the things that is really important to understand about Australia is 
the further you get away from the cities, the shorter your uh, average lifespan becomes because there are many more ways of dying uh, due to an avoidable death the more remote you become. Yes. So we need to think of ways of, of dealing with this. You know, having every every country magistrate a coroner was probably the best way of doing it once upon a time in the steam age. But now we can do things by Zoom. We can have local police conduct investigations. We can have Zoom in uh, conversations. We can do all sorts of things technologically. And of course, it's easy for coroners, if, if they wanted to hold an inquest, to fly out to Dubbo or Burke or Broken Hill or Bigger or, or wherever. Um, distance shouldn't be as tyrannous as, as it actually is. We can, we can work more efficiently and, and we've got to think about uh, our systems and our processes as well as resources to, to make this work better. Now, one, of, one of the other things, I've touched on this, but one of the things that is very, very frustrating is there is, has been historically so little thought given to how to manage this very complex multidisciplinary system in an optimal way. And in fact, there's been resistance to thinking about it in that way. Um, so that's one of the problems we've got to tackle with government, I think, rethinking this system. Just on, I think, in the quite um, in-depth comments you've made about that, it really does, does bring me back to this connection between the referendum and, and the coronial system. Mm -hmm. um, the referendum was about deep issues in Australian society, and we've got another one here with the coronial system, which, of course, you know, we inherited from the British, um, a system that goes back at least to the 12th century. And from what you're saying, oh, we haven't made a lot of progress, and that impacts on everyone and, and including Indigenous families. On, on that, the Aboriginal Legal Service expressed its disappointment in the government's lack of response to those recommendations from the parliamentary inquiry. Yeah. How does a broken system like you've described, and to be honest, the way you've described it is quite fair and accurate, is um, quite fundamentally broken. So how does such a broken system impact Indigenous families? And we know they've got much higher rates of incarceration with deaths in custody occurring and police uh, um, custody, etc. And we know that Indigenous people have shorter rates of life expectancy for all sorts of reasons. Mm -hmm. So how does this broken system impact Indigenous families? My impression is they put up with it as best they can. Uh, some are angry about it and the parliamentary inquiries that I should say that the parliamentary inquiry into the coronial system was preceded by an inquiry into the over-incarceration of Aboriginal people, First Nations people, yes, and the oversight of deaths in custody, Aboriginal deaths in custody. And it was by looking at Aboriginal deaths in custody and the way the coronial system uh, looked at it that the parliament discovered that the coronial system itself was hopeless. That's very interesting. Yeah. And it was in part because of the anger 
of Aboriginal people and advocates for them or with them uh, that the parliament decided to look at the coronial system all by itself. There are some good things happening. I mean, it's not all bad. Uh, and one of the good things that's happening is that the state coroner, Teresa O'Sullivan, has made um, prioritising the experience, prioritising Aboriginal families, um, a, a major project for her and for the for New South Wales coroners. There have been, and as a result of her efforts, there have been Aboriginal family liaison officers employed. And there's a new way of approaching investigations of Aboriginal deaths in custody and so on. Um, but the, the system is still under-resourced. She's doing the best she can with the very little she has, and so are the other coroners. But look, one of the things that would make a major difference, in my opinion anyway, would be for more Aboriginal people to be employed at all levels of the coronial system, from coroners, forensic pathologists, if, if there are Aboriginal doctors who, who would train in that area, um, but particularly to have Aboriginal coroners and Aboriginal barristers working as counsel assisting, for Aboriginal people to walk in and to be able to see a, a black face in court, and also for white people or non-Indigenous people to be able to walk into a coroner's court and see an Aboriginal coroner sitting up there presiding over an inquest, I think would be a remarkable reform, and I very much hope it happens. It was one of the recommendations of the parliamentary inquiry that was rejected by the previous government, and I hope that this government will 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 adopt it. Yeah, I agree, and let's hope for that. No, I think what you've said is right here, and I think if, if we explored it more fully in the future, people explored it, they would find that there's a lot of things about the coronial system that have come from Aboriginal deaths, right? Yeah. From what started to be inquiries into Aboriginal deaths and then needed to go further to see what was wrong with the system. Yep. And, of course, we, we, we know that with Aboriginal deaths and a lot of other things with Aborigines, it's not the Aboriginal people that's the problem, it's the system, mm. our system, um, that fails to handle the issues. But anyway, we've heard some sometimes awful stories about people waiting years to find out what's happened to their loved ones. Um, yeah. From what you've seen, what does that do to a family, you know, from your position, as it were, as a coroner on dealing with families? What are these sort of, these long time lapses do to families? Well, it's, it's simply terrible for them. And one of the most embarrassing things for me as a coroner um, was to learn how terrible it is for people. I've, um, I've done some research and, of course, I work with family liaison people at the coroner's court when I was a coroner. There's a phenomenon known as prolonged grief or complicated grief. Ooh. And the longer the people remain without answers, the, the longer it is before they can really... Um, Come to peace, I suppose you'd put it. There's no such thing as closure, in my opinion. I'm so pleased to hear you say that. I have exactly the same view about closure. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen. It, there's no closure. You just have to 
learn how to live. Exactly. And when the death is avoidable, the living with it's harder. Yeah, and and one of the most important things that we can do if a death is avoidable is to try and learn the lessons uh, that may prevent future death. So that is one of the few uh, elements of solace that people may be able to extract from these kind of uh, well terrible events that that they have to to come to terms with. But if we stretch them on a rack for two, three, four, five years, we're really doing harm to people, I think. And it's not the coroner's fault precisely, but I, I think the coroners themselves could possibly do better, but I, it's mostly the system. It's, it's government's responsibility both to constantly review these systems that we have, the coronial system, for example, and to provide the resources and the means of improving them and respond to the distress that the families have expressed to the parliamentary inquiry and and other and in other forums. Yeah, there's some really important ideas there, Hugh. Now, a little more positive, what about when inquiries actually go well mm. with the families and uh, is there a sense of justice, a sense of resolution, you know, not closure, I agree with you, a sense of resolution. Have you seen good things come from coronial inquests when they're well-resourced and well-handled? I have, and and they're uplifting. Um, I I can remember doing an inquest into the death of a young woman who uh, contracted a very rare disease in a shearing shed and a terrible heat and so forth, but anyway, she she rapidly deteriorated and died and we had held an inquest and so on and so forth. But that became a very cathartic and healing experience, both for the, um, the boss of the shearing team, who felt incredibly guilty about this young woman's death, um, and the father of the girl. He was a, a Victorian farmer. And... After the inquest was over, I saw, uh, I walked off the bench and my counsel assistant came to me and said, Hugh, Hugh, come to the door and have a look at this. And there was this very big farmer, he was about six foot four, and the tiny little Nari shearing uh, team boss, it was about five foot four, and they had their arms wrapped around each other and they were crying and they had become friends and promising to see one another after the inquest and and so forth. So an inquest can do some good. On a more technical level, um, I did an inquest a few years ago into the death of a young woman who died as a result of a terrible uh, fire in uh, an apartment in Bankstown, and that led to changes in the Australian building code. Um, New buildings... uh, apartment buildings and, um, and buildings in which lots of people live are, are now required to have sprinklers. Sprinklers would have saved this girl's life. Mm. So that's a good thing. I should say, though, that this young woman who died in that fire, or as a result of the fire, uh, was a Chinese student, and I met her parents uh, about a year afterwards when the changes to the building code had been made 
and they were not at all satisfied. Um, they were still very angry with the boy who had accidentally lit the fire and had escaped. Yeah. So for them, there was no resolution. He had been deported to China. He wasn't prosecuted. Um, he was never civilly tried. And so they simply had no recourse against him unless they went back to China. Um, because we, and there's no extradition treaty with China. So it was a partial success, I suppose, but it, it wasn't really a success as far as the family was concerned. So there can be really good days and then not so good days and then sometimes real disappointments, as said. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, that story that you told is, is probably likely to bring a tear to many eyes apart from the mm. core people um, that were directly involved in it. Mm. And I did a study quite a few years ago. Um, oh, well, it wasn't a study. It was an analysis of media um, coverage of inquests. And it was just amazing in this quite comprehensive study. The family was always collared on the steps of the coroner's jurisdiction office um, and with TV cameras going and they're asked, you know, well, what do you say about the coroner's finding? And so many, when confronted by the media, when asked by the media, their first most gracious and heartfelt comment is, I don't want to see it to happen to anybody else. Yeah. And I'm just so pleased that there's been a full investigation of it and we need to learn from this. And honestly, it's almost impossible to believe that people could be, who are hurting so much and who are going through such a formal process as an inquest, uh, and have been asked a question by the media about it, can be so gracious and um, and thinking of others. I mean, it's just uh, it's and it's quite consistent, Hugh. What what the, what families say, you know. I completely agree. And you know, one of the very few things you can do for families following an inquest is to make recommendations. And sometimes, uh, I think coroners make recommendations which aren't very good simply as a kind of, in the hope that that might help the family. But what we should be doing, really, and this comes back to your point about resources, we should have a, a system which enables us to make much better resources. So having an in-house research unit, as they have in Victoria, would be a great help in that direction, I think. Um, you can't solve every problem and uh, and sometimes you are left really grappling to find something. But if, if we had that kind of resource within the system, then you could, I think, offer much greater solace to those families who so graciously and generously say, I've, I want my child's life to have meaning for others, uh, to bring in the, the death of others. And when you stand back and listen to what you've just said, coming back to what we're talking about, the um, the resourcing, the coronial system, it's hard to believe that any politician of any merit could not agree that a system that's about people losing their lives and the families of those who've lost their lives and what we can do to avoid others losing their lives is not amongst the highest priorities of any government. 
It's about saving lives. Yeah, precisely. And it always comes back to money when you talk to politicians, you know, how much will this cost? But here's the thing. The Australian government puts a value of $5.3 million on what they call a, an Australian statistical life. So the, the coronial system in Victoria costs around about $23 million a year. If the New South Wales system saved an extra two lives per year, economically it would pay for itself because we're all, already spending around about $10 million on it per year. The New Zealanders, interestingly, put a, st- a value on a statistical life of $12.5 million New Zealand dollars. So we don't know precisely what, what the economic value of an Australian life is, but it's probably somewhere between 5 and $12 million. million. So saving lives is actually economically a beneficial thing to do. There is the money, it's just got to be found, that's all. There's always money in government. We're spending billions of dollars on new jails. Uh, a tiny fraction of that, that sum could be diverted to saving lives. And some of them might be lives which would otherwise be lost in custody. Well, Hugh, it's so obvious that governments should think about saving lives and how to do it, and that it costs more not to save lives. Yes. Anyway, it's so good to talk to Hugh about all this. Then, you know, on sort of a positive note, if you like, what's your hope for the future of the New South Wales coronial system? Well, I'm putting my hopes in the new Attorney-General, that he will do what he says he wants to do. He is reviewing the Coroner's Act. He's received submissions from the Bar Association and other stakeholders. He, I'm told, wants to be an Attorney General who does something, who is seen to be doing good things. And he knows that the coronial system is busted and it needs help. Um, He's told me There is no money in this year's budget for it, but he's hoping for money next year to restructure the system, to give it more resources, to rebuild it, reimagine it, to support the coroners and people like you and I who are trying from the outside uh, to reform it. Uh, So I've got my fingers crossed. And the other thing I'm, I'm really keen to see happen, Ray, and the disappointing result in the referendum has made me feel even much more strongly about this. I really want to see Aboriginal faces working within the coronial system, not just so that Aboriginal people can see them, but so that all all Australians who have the misfortune to go into the coronial system can see Aboriginal people working professionally uh, and offering their experience and empathy and compassion to to everybody in that system. I think that would be a remarkable and wonderful thing. Yeah, and let's hope, and I think there might be some chance of that, fundamentally important um, to involve Indigenous people, and we've got a lot to learn yeah. as well. And they have so much to offer. And let's just hope that um, Attorney-General Michael Daly does some good things about saving lives. Yeah. 
I agree. Thank you very much for this wonderful discussion, Hugh, and we're forever indebted to you. Oh, it's my very great pleasure and always good to talk with you, Ray. I really enjoy it. Hugh Dillon, former Deputy State Coroner and Adjunct Professor at University of New South Wales, thank you for your time and your insights today. Big thanks to guest host Ray Watterson, retired Professor of Law, for taking the time to present this episode of Law Matters. And of course, special thanks go to former Deputy State Coroner Hugh Dillon for talking to us today. I'm Catherine Henry, and if you'd like to find out more about inquests, you can visit our website, catherinehenrylawyers.com.au. My team and I have helped many families navigate the processes of coronial inquests, and if you'd like to find out more, please get in touch with us. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review or send an email about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. We really love hearing from you. This podcast was produced by Pod and Pen Productions.